Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. A lot of ground to cover on today's program, and we're going to go through a lot of topics quickly just have a bunch of stuff that's been accumulating over the course of the week things i want to discuss with you and of course in the 230 segment we kind of lighten it up fun pop culture corner coming up all right one of the breaking news stories kyle rittenhouse who is the 17 year old the suspect in the kenosha shooting who has become sort of a a national celebrity in a weird weird way apparently for his defense fund there's over a million dollars that people have donated. At least that's what the, the reports are, which to me is sort of mind-boggling because you, I think you can have an argument as to whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse, what was this legitimate exercise of self-defense or not. But the, the fact that some people are portraying him as the, this hero and, and donating money to his defense, I, I'm not sure I understand all that. In any event, his case is going to be continued for at least the next couple weeks and probably more. He had a hearing today on extradition. Let me just kind of back up and explain what goes on here. He he was arrested in Illinois, and he is charged with a crime in Wisconsin. So what happens is he has to be brought across state lines. He has to be extradited. Normally, this is a, a routine procedure and normally it happens almost always defendants just they don't fight it because when you're being extradited it's not the time for the trial i mean in uh, authorities for in this case in in illinois they're not going to determine whether the guy's guilty or innocent that that's going to be for a jury at some point in time in wisconsin for extradition really the only issue typically is is this the person that they want all right, you you know is is this Kyle Rittenhouse who's being held in custody in Illinois right now? Is he the Kyle Rittenhouse who's charged with the crimes out of Kenosha? And, and that's that's typically what the question is. Um, and occasionally, if if people want to fight it, you know what happens sometimes is if the defendant wants to make the government or the state jump through the hoops, you can schedule an extradition hearing, and then what will happen is somebody from, in this case, Kenosha, would have to travel down to Illinois, would have to show up and say, yes, this person that is sitting in the courtroom here, that Kyle Rittenhouse is the same Kyle Rittenhouse that we are looking for in our charges. And then it becomes pretty automatic. In this case, I I think mostly as what I can only describe as a stalling tactic, you have the attorneys for Rittenhouse who refuse to consent to extradition, refuse to uh, consent to allowing him to be brought back to Kenosha. And so what they said they're going to do is they are, are going to mount a huge legal challenge to the extradition proceedings, including filing a writ of habeas corpus, which would be a claim that they would be making saying that he is being illegally held. I mean, good, good luck with that. And the judge in Illinois gave him gave the Rittenhouse attorneys a couple weeks to file that. They said it doesn't the motions, any motions you might have have to be filed by October 8th. After that, assuming that there are 
in fact, motions that are filed. If that were to happen, then you'd have to schedule another hearing because then the, the state, either of Illinois or of Wisconsin, would have the opportunity to respond to those. I mean, I guess if you're trying to ask me what's going on here, it, again, it looks to me like it's for all intents and purposes, it is a stalling action. Rittenhouse is in custody. He's being held without bail. That cannot change. Illinois law says if you're charged with first-degree murder, as he is, you're, you're, you're held without bail. He's in a juvenile detention facility, so he's not going anywhere. But um, it is entirely possible if if this plays out and the Rittenhouse defense team decides we're not going to consent to this and we're going to do everything we can to drag it out. It's conceivable that this could last at least a few months before he gets transferred back to Wisconsin. Now, at the end of the day, in again, I, I you know, I'll give you some free legal advice from a recovering attorney here. At the end of the day, the chances of being able to defeat extradition, I, I think, are are slim to none, and Slim is on a bus heading out of town. So at some point in time, he is going to be brought back to Kenosha, I believe. But at this point in time, it, there, you don't have a date certain for it, so everything is pretty much on hold. But that was the development there. And meanwhile, money continues to pull in and file into his um, defense account. Here's a text. Jeff, hero. You must have not seen the whole video. Free Kyle. Well, he'll he'll get a trial, and then people will decide to, you know, then the jury is ultimately going to decide as to whether he's a hero or not. I'm, I think hero would be a tough, that would not be the word. You might be able to say, gee, he's not guilty because he was defending himself. I, I, I think it's tough to look at his conduct and come up with the word hero. But again, we'll, we'll decide that. All right. There is another breaking news story. If you were one of the Wisconsinites who were having, well, a difficult time trying to collect your unemployment benefits, we now have a better insight as to why that was. I will explain and we will discuss in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, this week's sponsor for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, are the senior realty experts, Bruce and Gene Nimovitz. Great people from selling to downsizing and so much more. Visit brucesteam.com. All right, so yesterday, getting my hair cut. The gal who cuts my hair, the woman who cuts my hair, she has... She's caught up in the sort of horror story that is the Department of Workforce Development. Um, she has had a claim, I mean, self-employed, you know, barbers, hairdressers, whatever. Um, and, but they are entitled to unemployment compensation. They're entitled to unemployment. They are entitled under a program that's out there to that $600 a week in extra unemployment benefits. And um, she she has not gotten her money for months months. And what's even more frustrating is she has no way of checking where her application is because she will call up, I mean, where it is in the process. She will call up and they will say, no, we, we have this received, we have your paperwork, but we can't tell you anything about it. Now, this this is months and months and months. Now, thankfully, in her case, you know, she was able to go back to work, so she's got some money coming in, but there, there are thousands of dollars that she is owed, as are several of the people that, that she works with. And there's not going to be, I think, any sort of question as to whether they're entitled to it. It's just 
the state has been unable to process this. And so there's all this money that's out there. If you have been one of the people who've been frustrated with your ability to, I don't know, get some help or qualify or even just talk to somebody about your problem, we're now starting to see why that is. There is an audit that was released this morning by the Legislative Audit Bureau, which is the the nonpartisan arm of the state legislature that looks at different stuff and ends up with the reports. Now, now here's here is the deal. Apparently, there were since the pandemic started, since March 15th, there were 6.7 million weekly unemployment claims. As of now, six plus months later, more than 10% of those, that's 704,000 claims, were still being processed. So in the span of, of six months, we, we still have 10% of the claims, 704,000 claims, that the state hasn't managed to get around to processing. All right. That is frustrating in and of itself. If you call up now, you will not be able to, in most cases, get an answer as to where is my claim in the process. So we're, just, just tell me where it is. When might we expect some resolution of this? Do you need me to give you any more information? What can I do? You're just pretty much out of luck on that. But now these new numbers are almost staggering. All right. So you had the Department of Workforce Development call centers. And when this started, between March 15th and June 30th, people were calling to try to find out how do I go about filing a claim? What is the status of my claim? What documents do I need? Here are the numbers, and it, it is staggering. Apparently, during that three-and-a-half-month period, March 15th, March, April, May, June, so that three-and-a-half-month period, apparently there were 41.1 million Total phone calls received by the Department of Workforce Development, 41.1 million. Now, this isn't 41 million people that are making calls. It's 41 million calls because my guess is that you've got some people who are are calling on multiple occasions. We now understand why those people might have been calling on multiple occasions because get this, of the 41.1 million phone calls that were made, only 0.5% ultimately were answered. That's not 5%. It's 0.5%. Get this, more than 93% of the calls, 38.3 million calls, were blocked or were met with busy signals. So more than 9 out of 10 Wisconsinites who were calling to try to fight, figure out how to file a claim or to make the claim over the phone or whatever, more than 9 out of 10 weren't able to get through at all. The calls were either blocked or were met with busy signals. Okay, it gets worse. Another 6.2% of the callers ended up hanging up before receiving an answer. Now, that's two categories. That's one group where people are just were hung up on. You're, you're just on hold, and you're on hold, and all of a sudden, boom, you're, you're disconnected. Or it's you're on hold, and you're looking at your watch, and, okay, I've been on hold for 30 minutes. I've been on hold for an hour. I've been on hold for two hours. They must have forgotten about me. You hang up. But the bottom line of this is that it, it's just staggering, 93% calls never got through 6.2% of callers ended up hanging up before they got 
an answer. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand that the, the, the DWD call centers were overwhelmed. I understand that this kind of came out of, of the blue. But at the same time, it is unbelievable to me that you could have this complete and total of a failure which went on for as long as it did. This is over a three and a half month period. Do I understand the first couple weeks why you might have been overwhelmed? Absolutely. But how in, how in the world can you have numbers like this? And for those of you who were stuck on hold or hung up on or who constantly got the busy signal, I can only imagine how aggravating it must have been. There is no, in my opinion, no excuse for not doing better. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you're one of those people who still hasn't gotten money that you are owed, I'd be delighted to discuss this with you as well, because this has been a complete and total, at least in my opinion, failure. And when you look at these numbers, that it could have gone on for as long as it did, I I don't know. I mean, I I guess it's just incompetence. But how can that have been allowed to happen? We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Jill in Bayview. Jill, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. How are you is the question. I'm I'm fine, thank you. Love your show, by the way. Thanks. Thank you, and I love your outlook on life. But yes, yeah, so I'm going through that situation right now, and um, I work for Nielsen. I've got a, I mean, a wonderful company, and I was furloughed in the first week in July. So I'm very lucky to have my benefits, which is which have been great. And that's really important to me. However, I um, immediately started filing my claim, and uh, have I still this I still haven't received a penny at this point. But I call. They used to tell you that with the letter of your last name, you can call. I could call either on Thursday or Friday. And I run into the same exact situation you, you, um, that you've spoken of as far as the busy signal. Or, and I've actually spoken to people that I can't believe they're working from home right now. And, um, and some of it seems like a scam. I, there were three or four people I've spoken to that not seem like they're actually working for, um, for the, um, the unemployment. Because one woman said, can you call me on my cell phone number? We can discuss this off, off the radio. And I'm like, <laughs> so I was really frustrated. After holding for about, at that time, of over an hour. Yeah. And then she said because I don't want to get, get you in trouble, but I've got a way to get around this. And she's telling me this after I've been on hold. So so I'm in the situation right now, and I'm certainly looking for a little of your advice. Well, I mean, I, I don't see that. That's the frustrating matter of fact, the, the woman I was talking to yesterday, that, that's the frustration. I mean, she'll, she'll call up and say, okay, where is this? And they'll say, well, we don't know. We, we, we have your stuff. We, we have a record of that. But I can't tell, you know, we have no idea where in the process it, it is. And right. we can't tell you if we need more information. We can't tell you how deep in the pile on some bureaucrat's desk this is buried and we can't tell you whether you're, you're going to get you you know don't worry you'll get your money at some point in time but how how when people are depending on that to pay their rent or to pay their groceries or to pay their utilities right. that doesn't help right it's another issue too because they don't tell you i mean i am in a situation where now i'm gonna have to look for a part-time job because i don't know Right. If, I'm sure if I wouldn't get it, I'll be nice check. But they also aren't very clear when you talk to them about what is allowed as far as the part time. Are they going to take that out of my unemployment when I eventually do get right. that? And um, at this point right now, and um, it's it's frustrating too because there was for whatever reason there was something that showed up. I think the information now is 
really, I don't know what it was like in the past, but it's very inaccurate because they said there was a company, and I don't know if I should even name it, but it was a retail company in Wisconsin that I hadn't heard of, nor had they, and they said that I received a, received $3.19 from them in, in uh, 2019. I said, that's impossible. I've been working for the same yeah. company for quite some time. And um, and so that's holding my unemployment, and they said, well, we should be able to get that absolved, and, and I'll call back next Friday, like the day I'm supposed to call back with my Social Security number. Did That's still on there. That's still holding it up, and and she couldn't even look it up and find out who this company is. So, yeah, no, I mean, so I, I, I wish, I mean, that, no, no, Jill, I, I appreciate Jill. I, I wish I had a good answer for you. And, and the problem is I, I don't. And because it's just been so messed up. And I'm one of these guys that, you know, when I, when I put on, you know, when you go into like call waiting hell and you're there, I, I get incredibly frustrated. I can only imagine, and, and that's just if I'm trying to ask a routine question about a newspaper delivery or something, I can only imagine what it would be like if you're trying to, I don't know, collect money that you are entitled to that you're going to need to live on. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The votes are in. Now it's time to find out the winners. The Wisconsin Sports Awards are coming, and they will be unlike any WSAs before. Tune in next Monday as we broadcast the Wisconsin Sports Awards right here on 620 WTMJ. The ninth annual Wisconsin Sports Awards are presented by Gruber Law Offices, Cousin Subs, Potosi Brewing Company, and American Family Insurance. It all happens next Monday, September 28th at 6 o'clock on 620 WTMJ. Okay, a number of texts on this. And again, I... I understand in the beginning the system was overwhelmed. I, I, I appreciate that. But this idea that we, this idea that almost all of the calls that people made trying to get information about their unemployment or figure out how you do it, the fact that millions and millions, 93.3% of 41 million calls were, just never got through. They were blocked or you couldn't get through. And the delay was so great on another like 6% of them that people just gave up. I mean, seriously, I understand that there were underlying problems, but you have to be able to fix it. Here's a test, uh, text, Jeff. The system inadequacies and, op- and inadequacies and obsolescence were valid obstacles to official, uh, efficient unemployment claim processing. But the lazy inaction and lack of creativity and perseverance to immediately add the necessary resources like otherwise idle state employees to solve the problem are an incompetent lack of necessary response by the state government. Yeah, absolutely. You have a problem. It is apparent early on that you have a problem. Oh, my God, the phone systems are being overwhelmed. We've got to figure out a way to triage this. We've got to figure out a way to deal with it. And the state response was, okay, nothing to see here. All right, we'll get around to adding people when we do. It it reminds me, in a way, of the response of the Milwaukee County, the City of Milwaukee Elections Commission to the, the voting last April. Remember that they only had, what, five polling places that were open, and then you had the long lines, and then you, you had all the drama that was surrounding this. Whereas in other areas, like Madison, you did not have that problem. And you, you had the same COVID pandemic problems in Madison that you had in Milwaukee. But what happened was, in Madison, they got on it. They, they were proactive city of madison said okay we know we're going to have a problem here we know we've got older poll workers who aren't going to be able to come in they're not going to feel comfortable so let's figure something out let's find some of these state workers 
for example, or, or city workers who've been idled, you know, who are working at home or whatever, let's get them cross-trained so they can be poll workers. Let's think outside the box. Let's look, hey, what, what's an area of people who've been laid off? Well, let's look at our bartenders list because we have all the bars that are closed. Well, let's reach out and see if we can bring people in and train them. Meanwhile, in the city of Milwaukee, the Elections Commission took exactly the opposite approach. Well, we don't think they should go ahead and have an election. Okay, well, that that's great, but they were going to go ahead and have an election. So instead of just whining about the fact that we don't think this should happen, maybe they should have gotten off their duffs and said, okay, let's figure this out. Let's go out. Let's do some of the things they're doing in Madison. Hey, let's get the list of let, – let's find out kids that are going to UWM or Marquette, students that maybe we could draft to be poll workers. Let, let's get them trained. Let's start working on this a couple weeks ahead of time. And, and they didn't. And that's the same thing, I think, that you saw – play out with the Department of Workforce Development that's out there. It was just, okay, we're overwhelmed by this. Instead of saying, okay, let's pivot right away. Let's find all these state workers that are idled already, and let's put them to work, et cetera, et cetera. Eh, It's just, well, we'll we'll hire some people. We'll get around to it. And again, if you want to understand the depth of the problem, you're just starting to see that today. Just staggering to me that, again, less than 0.5% of all the calls on unemployment, less than 0.5% were answered. It's just amazing. Uh, Jeff, I'm still owed uh, $70 for a furlough during the first week of July. I went online, but you, I'm owed $970 for a furlough during the first week of July. I went online, but you could only file a claim when the office is open. Um, there's no contact with any workers at all. Jeff, I'm owed two months of unemployment because we were told as Uber drivers we were eligible for the $600 a month and we haven't received everything. I've pretty much given up on that money, but I tell you, I sure could use that. Well, sure, that's the question. Um, Jeff, the question of which I keep asking is what is the root cause of why people are not getting answers and why claims are not getting paid? Until somebody starts asking for the root cause and fixing the root cause, the issue is going to keep dragging on and on and on. Well, I, I don't know that it's a root cause. I think it's incompetency, incompetency and it's inefficiency and it's a failure to understand the urgency of this. Jeff, I think this is absolutely pathetic. Understandably, the office was overwhelmed, but what did the Evers administration do to mitigate this? What about a 24-hour phone system? What about moving staff from other departments? Um, on day one of COVID, the, the Evers administration knew it was going to have a problem, but it didn't talk about increasing staff and resources until months Afterwards, Well, yeah, that's the issue. Jeff, another example is the state park system. Instead of having some of the laid-off workers cut grass and maintain the grounds and keep the park open, they just shut them down. It ended up being easier. Right. That's See, again, that, that is the frustration of this. So I, I bring this up, number one, to demonstrate kind of the incompetence that was going on, and, and number two, for those of you who were caught up in this nightmare of a system, who thought, oh, gosh, is this only me? Can, can it only be me that this is happening to? Well, now you know the answer. No, it wasn't just you. As a matter of fact, if you were one of the people that was able to get through and get your problem solved, you were a very, very, very lucky person because the vast majority of people, when they needed the state, they were let down by the state. And, and candidly, a lot of people still continue to be let down, and that's 
unacceptable. Back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Boy, we're just getting overwhelmed by texts of people who are still owed unemployment compensation and haven't received it. Jeff, I have over 12 hours on the phone. Over 12 hours. No answer yet. I have talked to people answering phones from Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. What What's up with that? Yeah, you do wonder... Gee, if, if we're trying to find people, maybe maybe we should be looking. If you, if you try to find people to man some of these call centers, maybe we should be trying to figure out. Maybe we can take some of the Wisconsinites who are unemployed and get them working on that. Jeff, my uh, daughter is a senior at Marquette. She had worked part-time in order to pay her monthly car payments, phone bill, as well as buying for her own personal needs. Um, she worked for... Uh, like a tea store. It shut down permanently at the corners, leaving a number of young people out of a steady stream of income. She has frankly given up trying to collect unemployment from the state out of utter frustration. And now dad is helping her foot the uh, bills. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, she's lucky she has dad, but I'm sure that's it. It's like I'm owed this money, but it's just it is so frustrating. I, I can't get the these answers. Jeff, it's sad to see. I'm, I'm sad to say that's part. I'm part of the group that haven't received the six weeks of unemployment I was due. Um, my question is, what do you suggest we do? Here's what I would suggest you do to start off with. I would suggest that you call your state representative, your state assemblyman or your state senator. I would say, look, th- this is, you know, be nice, be respectful, say, look, I'm I'm stuck in the Department of Workforce Development unemployment hell. I filled out all the forms. I am entitled to this money. There's not going to be any issue, but my application is stuck somewhere in a pile of thousands and thousands of applications. So please, Mr. State Assembly person, Ms. State Assembly person, Ms. State Senator, Mr. State Senator, please, can can you rattle some cages? Can you call somebody over there and say, hey, can, can you just find somebody who can maybe walk over to that giant pile and pull my file, my application, out from the bottom of the pile and then maybe just take a look at it? Now, if everybody does that... I understand that, you know, then there's overwhelming stuff, but you got to start putting pressure on our elected officials because it's very apparent to me that um, if you're depending on the state government and the Evers administration to handle this, I don't think that you're, you know, going to get much reaction. Uh, Jeff, I'm still waiting four months. It's starting to be an epic crisis as families begin to, you know, be homeless at the beginning of the winter. I honestly think they are just waiting for people to give up. Huh. Um, Jeff, I just talked to five people who are now getting audits asking for wages from 2018. Doesn't the state have this? I called unemployment. I've been able to get no answer at all. And then, of course, you have the some people. Jeff, focusing on Evers again, is voids the real issues of the nation. The president is failing America. Okay, I, I understand that we have, like, Trump derangement syndrome out there. Believe me, I, I get it. But in, in what world... <laughs> In what world is it Donald Trump's fault that the State Department of Workforce Development um, essentially couldn't answer over 38 million phone calls? You, I look, and I, I understand it's Trump derangement syndrome. I understand there's people who want to say, hey, it's Trump, it's Trump, it's Trump. This, this has been something that has been a state problem for months 
And I don't think it's getting any better. And that's what I think the issue becomes. So very glad to have you here, have you with us. And it is interesting that, of course, you've, this is now day three of the grand jury verdict and the Breonna Taylor matter, and a number of people are frustrated. And, and while there have been protests, those protests have not mounted to, have mounted to the, the degree of violence that you saw, you know, previously. Now, I don't know whether that's protest fatigue. I don't know whether it's the fact that even though some people are, are dissatisfied with the results, uh, people understand, as I was trying to argue yesterday, that I, I think from a legal perspective, the grand jury's decision in Louisville, as far as you know, issuing charges or not issuing charges, I, I think it was the legally supportable decision, which isn't to say that the police handled the situation properly, but not every, not every example of, of something that goes wrong is a justification for, for criminal charges. But nonetheless, you have a lot of people who've been upset about that and they're continuing to protest. And as we always talk about, people have every right to do that. At the same time, I do look at some of the other things that are going on in urban areas. And, and let's start with Milwaukee. And you, you look at some of these things and you kind of do raise the question about where is their outrage. I understand the legitimate outrage over the perception that you have a police department that is disconnected from the needs of the community. All right. And I think there's no question that we as a society, we need to do better in trying to improve police community relations. That The idea that the stuff, oh, let's abolish the police and things like that. that that's I mean, I think that's crazy talk. But the idea of do we want to make the policing more responsive to the community, that that's fine. And it's an appropriate subject for protests. At the same time, there there are larger issues in the criminal justice field facing urban America. And I am a little bit frustrated, I'm more than a little bit frustrated, that the, the same people who are, are protesting a, a situation in, for example, Louisville, aren't more outraged by stuff that is going on in their own community. For example, I'm just looking at the stories today, Friday morning, today. Um, n- police say that nearly between 50 and 60 rounds, those would be shots, were fired um, um, at someone just before 5 a.m. A man sustained a gunshot wound in the ankle. His condition is unknown. 50 to 60 shots. Um, here's another story. Police are investigating an overnight shooting. This would be 11 o'clock last night. Police responded to a call in the 3500 block of West Sarno Street, found three Milwaukee residents. A 20-year-old man, a 21-year-old woman, and a 22-year-old woman had all been shot. Each of them were transported to local hospitals. So, you, you know, you, you've got this shooting going on. Right now in the city of Milwaukee, they are on pace for a number of homicides that you're, you're going to have to go back to, if the numbers keep up like this, you're going to have to go back to probably the early 1990s to find a similar number of homicides. And what's playing out in the city of Milwaukee, in the mean streets of Milwaukee, is no different than what's playing out on the streets in other sort of urban areas. There's no different dynamic at all. You know, what you have is you have the level of violence just reaching 
unacceptable levels. And in general, and again, there, there are exceptions to this, but if you look at a lot of this violence, what it is, it's crimes of violence perpetrated by persons of color against persons of color. Now, that's not exclusive, but, but that's, you want to talk about a, a crisis going on in urban America today, and I would argue it's the shootings. I mean, who wants to live in a community where, what's the story today, 50 to 60 shots you know, ring, ring out? I mean, it, it's, it's like living in, you know, one of the old style gangster movies where you'd have the these indiscriminate types of shootings. You want to talk about stuff that affects quality of life on on a daily basis, and it is the the unacceptable levels of violence. Now, I bring this up because I believe in my heart of hearts, a lot of the people that are taking to the streets and engaging in peaceful protest, they are legitimately trying to bring about change to try to make their communities better. Fine, and and that's that's all well and good. And like I say, I think it's fair to say, okay, we need the police to be more responsive. But to direct all this anger that is directed at the police when, in many respects, the real problem that you have, and do you have examples of police misconduct? Of course you do. No argument about that. But the real problem that you know people who are living in urban areas face on an almost daily basis, it's, it's not with the police. It's with the fact that, gee, I could be walking down the streets, and all of a sudden, boom, gunshots burst out, or people are driving by and firing 50 or 60 shots. I mean, Okay, if we want to focus protest activities on stuff that really affects quality of life on a daily basis, maybe we need to concentrate less on police community relations, which admittedly have some work to do, and more on what can we do to make our community safer from the real scourge, which would be the criminals that are out on the street. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Philstadt, we were talking off the air. I, I just sent out, for people who follow me on Twitter, I, um, I, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I sent out a photograph of this car on 64th and Meineke. It, it's... It, it's almost it's one of these where a picture is worth a thousand words. Apparently, that the, somehow the car jumped the curb, but <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm baffled just by looking at it because if you look at it, it doesn't seem like the car would have been able to make it into the window unless it was in the air, right? I mean, it's it's the living room window, if you will, of a of an older home, and it's. It's, it's in the car sideways. It's, it's sideways in the window, uh, almost all the way up to its back wheels. Right. I mean, it, this is one of these things that you know, if if you were trying to stage it for a movie, for some reason right. you want to stage a movie, you knew you you know this is one that would have taken stunt drivers and stunt coordinators a week to figure out how they're going to, <laughs> yeah. to do right. this. Right. I, I just it, it's just and again, if you want to see a picture of this, it's you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. It's just it, it's you look at this and say how. How in the world could you have mm-hmm. gotten the car from the curb into this position, you know, and it, it apparently jumped the curb. Who knows? how? It must have been going really, really fast, turned sideways, smashed through the window. I don't know. And if anyone knows that area, this is uh, on the east side of Wauwatosa. This is just north of North Avenue. It's, right. uh, it's east of Wauwatosa Avenue. I mean, that's not an area where you can really get. I mean, it's a congested 
right. suburban area. Right, right. With street, with close, with, with homes street close par- to each other. With street parking yeah. and stuff. And, and I just don't, I, I guess I don't know how big the front yard would have been, to how, how you get a run up to this, because the car would have had to have been accelerating to go airborne like this. It's yeah. just, it's it's one of those accident reconstruction people or that. Hey, okay, I have a question before you leave. All okay. right. Are you, see, one of the things that's incredibly frustrating to me, and I, I admit that as, as I, I was never the most patient person. As I get older, I do kind of lose even more patience. But, you know, when, when you're, when you get on to like like phone hold, you know you call the place because you need to you need to cancel something or or whatever. Okay, your call is important to us, and you get yeah, put on hold. Yeah, yeah. Do you have like a time limit before you'll just like give up? That, that's a great question. I, I think my internal clock says about like seven minutes. I can't do it. I can't oh, sit on hold that long. Oh, you'll only give it. Sec- Can you imagine if you were one of these people trying to get the unemployment claim? Oh, I, and- I, it's that it's baffling to me. It's baffling how long some of them waited, and then the, never even still made it through. Right. Well, what what is the frustrating thing about what happened to some people? And I've had this happen to me. I, sometimes it just becomes a quest for for me. You know, you you get put in the phone hold hold hell and like if i'm sitting at my desk here i'll just put i'll put it on speakerphone okay. and i'll just and then i'll i'll continue doing other stuff and I'll, oh it's been 30 minutes oh it's it's been an hour j- j- trying to change your subscription at the local newspaper that used to be like that i don't know if it still is but it was legendary you'd, you'd have these call waits of, of an hour or two hours and all i'm trying to do is all i'm trying to do is put a hold on the paper while yeah. i go on vacation but that was legendary but it would be you you time it out and then i just sit there and watch it but the really frustrating thing is so like you've been on hold for an hour and fifteen minutes, and mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I'm going to, I, I'm going to stick this out. Your call is important to us; it'll be answered, and <laughs> the, the, the number gets it. And then all of a sudden, you get hung up on. Then it's just all of a sudden you're just gone. You oh, go, whoa, yeah. no, no. I I went through that just about a week, about two weeks ago. I, I had a. I had a, a question about a pension thing. And so th- this wasn't the government, but I'm calling up and I, I, I got onto that and I got transferred and you get oh, the music. Man. Your call is important to us. And it, I, I, you know, I, they, I was thinking about giving up, but after about 45 minutes, somebody came on the phone. I'm not sure they helped me or not, but they came on the phone at least. They got that person. See, the difference there is that, okay, yeah, that's something you got to figure out, but you're not unemployed at that Oh, moment. absolutely. And yeah. imagine that every day the number of people who are getting up every morning at exactly the right time to make that phone call and then to try consistently hour after hour, day after day, right. week after week. Right. No, and I have some people saying, well, it's not 41 million people. No. It's 41 million cars. Calls, but right, and so, but yeah, that I'm not sure that makes it work any better because it's the same, it's the same hundred thousand mm-hmm. people who need their money who are trying to call and right. can't get through. Yeah, yes, they're they're try- That's what makes it even more frustrating. This becomes your day. It becomes your job just trying to get somebody to answer the phone. Yeah. Go figure. All right, I want to completely and totally switch gears. Ron Johnson, senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Republican. Uh, senator Johnson is getting a lot of heat for something that he said. All right. Apparently, he was doing a, a conference call with the uh, Wisconsin's Commercial Association of Realtors, and he, he got to talking about outsourcing, which is you know taking jobs and sending them overseas. So here's what he said. He said, "Look, from my standpoint, when we don't have enough workers in this country right now, that's a real limitation to our economic growth. To me, it makes no sense for American workers to produce." high labor content products. Let the billions of people around the world do that and provide us these goods, high quality, dirt cheap. 
That, to me, is economically efficient. Unfortunately, we're probably going to retrench from that, that type of policy, and I don't see how it's going to particularly work. So what Senator Johnson is saying, at least the way I interpret this, he's saying, okay, look, there's this global economy, and if you have whether it's China or South Korea or whatever, and they're able to produce the products more cheaply and then sell them to us, all right, is that really a bad thing? Now, hear me out on this, because I, I understand everybody says, well, okay, we, we, we need to return American manufacturing and, and we, need to, we need to buy American. And, and I appreciate that. But think back to... I don't know, when we used to have Black Fridays, you know, the the day after Thanksgiving, and it, it's, it doesn't have the same significance it did five or ten years ago. But remember, you'd have people that would line up at 3 o'clock in the morning waiting for the Walmart to open up at 5.30, and you would have a mad dash to buy, I don't know, the, the big screen TV set for $199. Well, that big screen TV set that people were tripping all over themselves to buy for 199 bucks, that was in all likelihood made in China or made in South Korea or made in India or, or wherever. Same thing true of the, the DVD players or the CD players or whatever the hot piece of electronics was. People were rushing to buy them because they wanted that big screen TV for $199. Well, the problem is... If, if you made that TV set in America and you tried to retool, that TV set wouldn't be $199. It would be $399, and then people wouldn't pay for it. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. That's why I said a couple minutes ago, it's, the old, it's from the old Pogo comic. I've seen the enemy, and we is us. And, you know, and he, I've seen the enemy, and he is us. And the the idea is, look, I I understand that you know, gee, we we want good paying American manufacturing jobs that are there. Okay, nobody disagrees with that premise, but at the same time, if if those good paying American jobs trying to I don't know, bring the TV set industry for my example, let let's make all these big screen TVs in somewhere in Tennessee or whatever, and let's pay people twenty five dollars an hour to make them. Okay, that that's a that's a wonderful sort of thing. But if the cost of the TV set then goes to $400 instead of $200, will people buy it? And in the real world, what we've seen is is they don't. We complain, gee, these jobs are being outsourced. I understand why people get upset about that. But at the same time, when we run to the stores, we want we, we don't want to spend $450 for the American-made TV set, in my example. We want the one for $200, and the only way you're going to get the one for $200 is if you outsource. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The headline is, Ron Johnson backs outsourcing, says it's better to have products made dirt cheap overseas. Is he wrong? Why or why not? We discuss Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, Americans have become so accustomed to going into Walmart and paying 99 cents for a toilet brush. And if the production of that toilet brush moved to America from wherever it's made, the same toilet brush would now be $2.99, and everybody would be screaming that Walmart is profit gouging. Well, that's kind of my point. It's kind of the point that I think Senator Johnson was, was making. That is, there, there is a, a trade-off. There are products that can be made 
street and his phrase dirt cheaply elsewhere. And doesn't it make more sense to have those products that can be made dirt cheaply elsewhere be brought in then freeing up America to try to, you know, find find other sorts of jobs and ch- channel their production to other sorts of things. Again, the, the flip side is, and, and you have to look into your own hearts for this. The flip side is, if you don't, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, well, all right, are you going to be one of those people then that are going to say, okay, I'm going to spend four hundred dollars for the big screen TV made in America, or am I going to, or am I going to complain that gee, I want to spend two hundred dollars? I mean, when you run into the WalMarts, and I don't mean to pick on Walmart, but you run into the WalMarts, you run into the Costco's, and you buy the TV set made for you know in South Korea, and you go, oh, this is great, I got a sixty inch TV set, and it's two hundred and forty nine dollars made in in South Korea. That's fine, but if you started to bring the production home and you start to pay the big money for it, what you would be looking at is maybe doubling the cost. Are are you willing to do it? And this has been a frustration of mine because, like I say, for everybody who says, no, we want to buy American, I respect that. But then you see the people lined up running into the Walmart to get the deals. Let's talk to Al in Pewaukee. Al, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I worked in manufacturing all my life, uh, retired now, but I had experience at Briggs and Stratton back in the early 80s when I started there in engineering, and and there were people there working on the shop floor that were making twice as much as me, and I was a mold designer or whatever, and I complained to my boss. He goes, Al, he said, those good-paying manufacturing jobs are buying Mercury Marine engines up, up for their boats. They're buying motorcycles from Harley-Davidson. They're buying nice lawnmowers from errands and snowblowers. He said they're making good money, but then they're buying American products. And because they're American manufacturing jobs, they're making a decent wage. And so I kind of learned at early age of maybe 30 years old that he had a, a good point. And the older I get, the more I see it. I mean, I, I go out and buy American-made products as much as I can, especially in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. If it's a snowblower, a lawnmower, or whatever, although a lot of manufacturing went away in my lifetime. But, uh, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm one that wants to build things here. And then it also maybe carries over to military products later on. You actually have the technology and the skills here in the United States to do, make those things. Do you think do you think people are willing to do that though? And I, and I understand what you're saying, but my guess is that those same folks that were making the big money, they they yes, they were buying Wisconsin made, American made products, but at the same time, in addition to buying those Harleys, they they were also, you know, they were also buying the $200 TV sets made in in South Korea as opposed to spending $500 here. I mean, it I, I guess it do you think people are will people willing to spend more money to buy American made? Well, I do, and and some yeah. of my older friends do, but I don't know how you know my kids yeah. think. I mean, yeah. you know, they have good enough paying jobs; they can go wherever they want. But uh, I, I guess I'm just uh, no. I, I too, too much too many years of manufacturing left first from Wisconsin to the south to Mexico and to Asia. So I mean, I'm looking at trying to get manufacturing back in the United States oh, again. Oh, absolutely! No, thanks to call. And, and by the way, I, I think you do raise a couple. Real, one of the things that's come out through this pandemic, at least in my opinion, is. When it comes to supplying certain things, whether it's pharmaceuticals or whether it's PPE stuff and all, we, we should not have to depend on foreign countries as much as we do. There, there's no question about it. And I do hope one of the things, whether it's a President Trump or a President Biden or whatever, one of the things that we look at as we try to protect ourselves from the next black swan, the next pandemic, and there will be one in our lifetime, unfortunately, let's face it. One of the things I think we need to look at is, okay, we don't want to be dependent on 
on on China for you know this precursor drug if if we need this we we want to be able especially to protect ourselves but overall see this is the problem are you willing are you willing to pay more for American stuff? Uh, here's a text, Jeff. John Menard was asked why Menards didn't, Menards didn't sell higher-end products. He said people would rather have cheaper prices than higher quality. Well, I think there might be, uh, again, something to it. And, and part of it is, for a lot of people, you, you want the good. You want the product, but you don't necessarily have that kind of disposable income, you know, you're, you're trying, you say, okay, I, I, I want to get that new TV set and I, I'd love to have, I'd love to be able to drop a thousand dollars on a TV set, but I don't have a thousand dollars to drop on the TV set. So what I'm going to do is do the best I can. I'm going to get it the cheapest product I can, but at the same time, I'm still going to have that 20, that 50 inch TV screen. Jerry on the South side, Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, uh, hi, Jeff. I don't think I'm just looking at a website right now, uh, say by a group called the Rodan Group. And in 2014, what, a product that cost a dollar to make in the United States cost 95 cents to make it in China. Now, depending on the country, the, the numbers would be a little bit different. Right. But I don't think it's that much cheaper to make something in. I think companies like Walmart and other companies that make things overseas want Americans to think that they're much cheaper because for the most part we don't know how much cheaper something is taking someone like the toilet brush or someone's a toilet brush right it's not three times more labor cost to make a toilet brush in a foreign country than the united states i don't think there's much labor to produce it so when people talk about the price of something made overseas we really don't know exactly companies often want us to think it costs that much less or much more war in the United States. And we don't really know, for the most part, what the average cost is, because we're not looking at studies. Well, why is it that you think, and and again, it's an intriguing thing that you say, Jerry. I I guess my question would be, why then would, why then would American companies be outsourcing as much as they do um, if it weren't a lot cheaper? I mean, what, what would be the reason behind it? I mean, generally speaking, when I hear production of this or that or the other is going to Mexico or it's going, you know, somewhere overseas, it's normally because the company has figured out that it's a lot cheaper to do it. I mean, if it was, if it was even close in the ballpark, wouldn't you keep the production here? Well, I mean, if there's any edge on the cost of making it, um, okay, that thing was the Boston Consulting Group that said 95 yeah. cents, make, uh, a product made in trend. Uh, if there's any edge, there, there's a benefit. See, they want the, the people making the product, they want Americans who have make enough money to afford to buy their product. So, but they don't lose anything if they make it overseas. They just want to rely on other companies to employ Americans to make enough money to buy their own product. So, but they don't lose anything. You know, at a certain mm-hmm. point, maybe the cost you know, the benefits of staying in the U.S. outweigh the, the cost of going overseas because of, you know, more yeah, skilled workforce and everything here. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. I mean, again, I, I, I you know, maybe, I, I guess, but maybe. And again, I'll just go back to my basic premise and that, and I, look, I'm not arguing in favor of outsourcing, but I, I think it's a, it is a discussion that we have to have in America that if, if the premise is correct, and I understand you, Jerry, you dispute that premise that it's it's cheaper to make stuff overseas, recognizing that there, there's going to have to we're going to have to pay more. Are people are willing to pay more? Uh, here's somebody says uh, text Jeff. The cost of materials is about the same. It's the labor that is a lot more expensive. Um, Jeff, the regulatory costs are 
the regulatory costs are what's killing us. Jeff, if you buy Amazon and Walmart, you are hurting the U.S. Well, okay. Well, you, you, you want to look at where the growth is as far as businesses? It would be Amazon and Walmart. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I want to double back on something we, we discussed in a quite a slightly different context yesterday. There's a lot of controversy now involving returning children to schools. I'm not talking about college kids right now. I'm talking about grade school kids. Some schools are all virtual learning, like M, uh, like MPS. Some schools are all in-person learning. And some schools are, are a hybrid where you're in school for a couple days, then it's virtual learning for a couple other days. Now, now follow me on this one. I think we would all agree that virtual learning is a poor substitute for in-person instruction. I, I, I just I mean, I, I don't even I, I guess there, there might be some kids that it works for, but I think we can accept that as a premise. It's just it's a poor alternative works better for some than others, but is not an ideal situation. OK, the flip side of this, though, is that, you know, when you put children back into classroom settings and you put teachers there and we're in the time of a pandemic, you do run the risk that the kids are going to get sick, bring it home, etc., you know, and, and spread it. So that's the balance. You've got, you know, virtual learning, which isn't a good alternative, um, is when compared to personal instruction versus the risk that you have that people might get sick. Okay, now let me let me add a little wrinkle into this because there's There's sort of an eye-opening piece that's in the New York Times today. There's lots of conversation about vaccines. And I think the truth of the matter is that COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. But once once you get a vaccine and it starts to be widely developed, assuming, assuming that the vaccine has a decent degree of effectiveness, it's going to start getting us back to normalcy. Now, I understand it's not going to be a magic bullet because not everybody's going to take it and it's not going to work for everybody, but... But it, it's a start, and it's an important step, and I think we got to figure out how to live with COVID until that vaccine develops. Well, here's the interesting thing in the New York Times piece, and follow me on this. They're, they're working on these vaccines, but they're not working right now on vaccines that are designed to be given to children. Right now, the concentration of, of trying to find the vaccines is let's find vaccines that are safe and effective for the adult population, why? Well, it's obvious. It's because, you know, adults are at higher risk of getting really, really bad results if they get COVID than, than somebody, than, than your typical 12-year-old. That, that's that's just where the numbers are, which isn't to say a 12-year-old can't have a bad response. But the, the concentration, the concern is we want to deal with the people who, if they get sick, are going to have the worst reaction to it. So let's Let's concentrate on on that. So the the piece in the New York Times says, look, if we're able to get a vaccine and start getting it widely developed in the fall or in the winter and start getting it distributed, you know, millions and millions and millions of doses, most of that, that's going to be geared to adults. And that's going to be who's given the priority. The premise of the New York Times article that I'm looking at, it makes sense to me, is that at best, Vaccines for children, school-age children that we're talking about, probably at best aren't going to be around for another year, fall of 2021. So let's 
let's assume that, you know, maybe it's even a little bit later than that. So that would mean that, you know, we're going to probably go for at least another year, maybe, maybe more, maybe a year and a half, maybe January of 2022, before we're going to have vaccines that are going to be able to be widely distributed to kids. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How do you balance the risk and reward? If if this premise is correct, that we're not going to be able to start vaccinating kids for another year or another year and a half, and we accept the fact that if we send them back to school in person, that they're going to have a, a risk of, of getting sick. All right. And they're going to have a risk of then bringing it home. And if mom and dad haven't been vaccinated or something, maybe getting mom and dad sick. How do we balance this out? Can we can we keep kids out of school? Can we do virtual learning for another year or another year and a half? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I, I personally don't think that that's a practical sort of solution. And I, I'm not minimizing the significance of COVID-19, I, I'm just don't, I just don't think we can consign America's young people to another year or year and a half of virtual learning, which in many cases, through nobody's fault, just isn't working. 855-616-1620. If we got to wait another year and a half before we have a vaccine for kids, is it worth it? We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> 855-616-1620. Eric in, Oak, uh, Eric in Cudahy. Hi, Eric. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment about the uh, virtual learning. Um, for some students, it can't work. Uh, I have a 7-year-old son who is a nonverbal autistic child. Mm-hmm. He cannot do virtual. Yeah. There's no way. Uh, he needs more hands-on, interactive um, and I fought and fought with the Oak Creek School District about getting him back in, and they they allowed him back in uh, small classrooms with only you know you know severely disabled uh, children right. like him. Right. Well, you know, it's in, my my. Uh, what I'm thankful for. Sure. Well, I mean, you're right. There, there's lots of kids it just doesn't work for. My my son-in-law is is a special, you know, t- teaches at high school level special special needs kids, and you know, he'll be the first to tell you that it just that that is not conducive. You know, teaching special needs kids as a general rule. I'm sure there's exceptions, but it's just not con- the, the virtual learning just isn't conducive. They they need that hands-on type of of stuff, and I'm sure it varies from kids to kids. But it, you know, it, it you can't do it over the you can't do it over the computer. You can't give the kids what they need. So it, the parents parents like you Eric, are in a real difficult quandary i guess you you, you got to get the kids back in school right i mean my daughter goes to oak creek high school and they're doing the hybrid two days on two days virtual but i can work with her she can do the virtual but my son cannot right right no you have i mean thanks and, that, and that's the see and that that's the balancing of, of where this comes in and I, I understand whenever we talk about this i will have people that send me texts or emails or, or call up and they'll say it's just too risky we, we can't send kids back to school until there is a vaccine well okay that means that we're not if if that's the premise that means we're not going to be sending kids back to school 
for at least a year and truthfully probably more than that. So, I mean, is that is that workable? Here's a text, Jeff. I, I think this is untenable. Our kids are already behind in worldwide education. Parents can't just retire and stay home. Kids' risk is minimal. Vaccinate the vulnerable. The rest of us, we should simply follow protocols. Let's talk to um, Andrea in Burlington. Andrea, good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. So I, I prefaced it to the gentleman I spoke to earlier. I'm the mom of two kids. I'm a transplant from the south side of Milwaukee, um, and I you know, went to the Milwaukee public school system, all that good stuff. Um, I totally get needing to get kids back into school. We are huge pro-masters in our family. We have scientists and doctors and nurses and whatnot, um, there is a risk. There's, there's, there's a huge risk. And as the mom of a child who is chronically ill, uh, I am I am beyond anxious right now. Right. Um, but we are also trying to balance it with what do these children need the most? Um, my kids are lucky. We rec- My husband and I recognize our privilege. I'm a realtor who works from home. Right. My son is a type 1 diabetic. One thing that I've learned in this seven-and-a-half-year walk with diabetes is the FDA and these other governmental agencies, they never approve anything medical unless it's been tested on adults first right. um, because of ethics and whatnot. And I really feel like, you know, it, it is unfortunate for these kids who really do um, need the additional support. Right. Our school has had a wonderful virtual, virtual learning experience. Um, but we are not the norm, and I recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I really feel like the problem is, is we have too many folks who just are, and this is, I don't mean to make it political, science is not political. It's too much my rights, my rights, my rights. Well, if you want life to get back to normal, please be responsible. I, I don't get paid if I stay home with my children, if, I, if they're sick. I don't get paid. Um, it is what it is, and it's, it is a new normal. I really feel like we just need to do our best as parents to stop squabbling about it, mm-hmm. support it, and really encourage our lawmakers to do what is right because that's where we're going to get. So, so, so let me ask you this, Andrea. Let, let's, let's, let's have the rubber meet the road here. So if um, school districts said we're not going to resume in-person classes until there is a readily available vaccine. And it, just for the premise of our conversation, if that's at least a year to a year and a half away, um, do you, you think the school should then stay closed? Would that be the right decision? You know, it's, we're already asking these teachers and these school staff to not get paid what they're worth. And now we're asking them to take bullets for our kids, and now a, a viral bullet, if you will. It, you, I don't think that there's going to be a good answer for this, because you do have the kids who don't need the extra assistance, and then you do have special ed kids who do. And it's, it's an absolutely frustrating experience. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I do agree with once there's a vaccine, absolutely, your child needs to have it. If they want to attend face-to-face, like it was in the 80s when I was a kid, if you didn't have your MMR and polio, right. you didn't go to school. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, Andrea, I gotta let you go because I'm kind of, I'm sorry, I'm kind of up against the clock, so I gotta let you go. But yeah, I mean, well, that's, I mean, that's true. Once there's a vaccine, 
you can require the vaccine um, as a condition of going to school, then there's a question about whether you're going to allow an opt out or, or whatever. But but we're, we're a ways away from that. And I guess I bring this up because it, it is a, a difficult sort of situation and, and we're balancing. And, and, and that's that's where the balancing comes in. How important is the in-person learning? I would say that's extremely important. How important are the safety factors? I, I think as a general rule, I, I think that the good thing about this is that kids don't tend to be carriers and don't tend to have adverse reactions compared to like their, their 82-year-old grandparents. So that to me you know, tips the balance in doing everything we can to get kids back into school as soon as possible. But I appreciate that it's a very, very difficult issue. Back with more in just a couple of minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. And this is Jeff Wagner. This is my last opportunity to remind you of this. Your deadline for entering this, what we're calling, for want of a better term, a contest, is Sunday. Do you own a local business or know somebody who does? One small business could win a $50,000 advertising campaign. That's right. News Radio 620 WTMJ is teaming up with Associated Bank to help local businesses grow and succeed through these challenging times. To nominate a company or a group, and this this is a legitimate thing. It's not we're trying to get you to buy a timeshare or something like that. It is a legitimate thing between us and Associated Bank, a $50,000 advertising campaign to one small business. Go to rebuildingwibusiness.com by September 27th. One deserving business will walk away with an ad campaign valued at $50,000. Time is running out. The deadline is September 27th, which is Sunday. Head to rebuildingwibusiness.com now for entry details and official contact. Contest rules. Associated Bank is a member of the FDIC. When we come back, all right, how realistic is this? And are you willing to give up your car? We'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Melissa, let's get the important stuff out of the way. I'm not going to bury the lead. Uh, it's my brother's birthday today. Oh, my happy brother birthday. Scott. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Scott. Absolutely. And, you know, we were talking off the air. It's, I, you know, and you would ask me what our relationship is, mm-hmm. and we are extremely close. He is, I, I mean, he, he is my best friend. I have what I would describe as, you know, some, I have a couple other people, one person in particular I refer mm-hmm. to as my best friend, too. And, and we're very close. But my brother is in that category as well. Oh, we get sure. along. Yeah. It's always been amazing to me because I'm sure you know some people who the siblings don't get along, the families don't get along, mm-hmm. and it's just that that's mind-boggling. And I, I mean, I understand stuff happens, but I'm thinking how how disappointing that must be because I, I not only love my brother, but I like him, I enjoy him, and you know we're we're extremely extremely close. Yeah, you know it's interesting family dynamics. Every sure. family has its issues, its problems, its good points, like the good and the bad. So my family's a little weird. Like there are some people that don't talk to each other, but all my siblings and I, we all talk to each other. So that's, I feel very blessed in that way where I wouldn't hesitate to, you know, call any of them in the middle of the night if I needed something. Uh, You know, there are times in my life where certain decades I feel closer to one than I do the other. When I was younger, I felt closer to my older brother. Now I feel a little bit closer to my younger brother. So just kind of ebbs and flows and, and in our case it's just the two of us so you know of, yeah. so but it's there but no we're we're extremely close and it's it, it's always sort of funny because scott is is younger than me but 
sometimes people don't know that they're for a variety of reasons, <laughs> oh, yeah. including the fact that I, I think I look younger than I am. And that's always a very good thing. But it's kind of like, so which one of you is older? Oh. And so he will always introduce me as this is my this is my brother, Jeff, my significantly older brother. OK, here, here's <laughs> the other funny. here's the other funny mm-hmm. thing. The other funny like Wagner folklore story that I always tell when about this. Um, uh, my, my brother was at Marquette undergraduates. And I was starting my law career, and you know he w- he was thinking about going into broadcasting. Really? So, mm-hmm. older brother Jeff says, "Scott, are you out of your mind? There, there's there's no money in broadcasting. You want to go to law school." So he he went to law school, and you know he he's a very very successful lawyer. But he's like, wait a second, you know you I wanted to be the one that went into <laughs> broadcasting, and now now you're doing a radio show, and I'm the guy. <laughs> well, you should have him on the show. Well, we have him on the Christmas special all the time. Okay. You know, we have him on the Christmas special all the time. But it's, um, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, he never lets me forget that. He says, okay, so now, you know, I'm, he's, yeah, I think he's preparing for a trial right now or something. He's working like 60 and 70 hours a week. And he said, wait a second, you know, you're, you're doing this radio thing and I'm there. <laughs> and I said, well, I love you anyways, Tough pal. Luck, buddy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, you listen to me. You screwed up. What can you say? You asked me for advice. I gave you the best advice. Well, you just never know where. I, that's true. I don't think it was necessarily bad advice. It's just that you never know the directions that life might take you. So if you see my brother Scott out and about, tell him happy birthday. All right. I just don't see how this is going to happen, and I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm willing to discuss with you. Now, California which is kind of like the the Madison of of the left coast. The the governor of California. Now, you've got a lot of stuff going on now. You've got the the fires. You've got the mudslides. You've got an electric grid, and this becomes important, that, that is... That is the subject of constant shutdowns, you know, whenever the weather gets warm and things like that. Against this background, the governor of California has signed an order this week saying that by 2035, which is 15 years from now, by 2035, it will be illegal to sell a new car in California that uses an internal combustion engine. I mean, the way, the way it's phrased is they, they have to be carbon neutral, which means uh, essentially uh, a zero, zero emission cars, which means electric cars. So by in the next 15 years, in California, you will not be able to buy a new car that uses the internal combustion engine. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've got a used car, you can't continue to drive the used car. It doesn't mean that you can't sell your used car. But new cars, it's essentially only going to be electric cars that are sold within the next 15 years. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just don't see how this is is practical. And, and I, I guess at some point in time, I understand that electric cars, which are, what, about 2% of the, the whole automotive market right now, I understand that, 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 you know, that more and more people will at some point in time turn to electric cars. But right now, where gasoline is extremely inexpensive, where the world is and will be for the foreseeable future a, a wash in, in oil and, and gas and things of, of the like. And the reality is that while electric cars have come a long way and will continue to come a long way, they're always going to be, at least 
for the foreseeable future, significantly more expensive than than internal combustion engine cars. Are you are people going to be ready to give up their gasoline powered car within the next 15 years? And gov- should government be telling you, you you can't drive your car? You're going to have to give it up. No more new cars if they're powered by gasoline powered engines. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I just think that this is it's a pipe dream. It's it's one of kind of the fantasies that you expect if you were watching the, the West Wing on TV. The other practical question I ask about this, and it's the first thing I thought of, was, okay, the power grid. In California, the power grid is an absolute and total disaster. You know, that every time you, you have one of these fires or something, they're, they're doing the rolling blackouts because the infrastructure isn't there to provide, you know, the, the power to keep people's air conditioners on or their lights on. The estimates are, if if you did go to an all-electric car, all-electric new cars, you'd probably need to increase the amount of electricity capability because everybody's going to be plugging these things in at night. You'd probably have to increase the power grid by about 25%. Explain to me how you're going to do that. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I just think this is, is sort of a of a pipe dream. What do you think? We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Jim in Milwaukee. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Jim. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great idea. The only thing is, I don't think it'll work simply because the cars are too affordable or unaffordable. Right. Uh, nephew's got a Tesla. You know, I rode him on it. It's just it's a ride like you can't explain. You yep. know? It's like a, you're on a roller coaster. Right. Right. But I just can't see people being able to afford it. I have a I have a friend. I don't see it. I have a friend who has a Tesla, too. I mean, I have a friend who has a Tesla, too. uh, Tesla as well. And I think it's one hundred twenty thousand bucks. I could be wrong, but I think it was one hundred twenty thousand dollars. And it's and it's like my nephew's was fifty five. Yeah, right. Because they have there's different variations of them. But I'm like, okay, who's going to be able to afford that? And the answer is not a lot of people. But he does produce. He puts solar panels on his house. He produces his own Mm -hmm. energy. Sells it to the electric company. Gets it back, and that's how he's. He's just a gold green guy. Well, and that and that's great. You know? No, no. Thanks, thanks. See, Jim, and th- this is the point. I I think. See, there's going to be a point in time. I- I'm a free market guy. There is going to be a point in time where it- it's going to the the cost of electric vehicles is going to come down to the point where th- they're going to be competitive. But and, and and I thought maybe we would hit that sooner because it, it, gas prices, yeah, gas at four bucks a gallon is one thing. Gas, I was driving in today, it's like a dollar ninety eight. I saw it. Gas below two bucks a gallon, and right now we are because of our our ways of extracting, you know, na- gas from the ground and fracking and things like that. I mean, we're a wash in in you know in oil so that the cost of operation is going to be low for the foreseeable future i mean the other question that i ask and it is a sincere one is 
how are you going to charge these things? I, I mean, like I say, on a, on an almost daily basis, I one of the one of the newspapers I, I look at, one of the websites I look at in preparing the show is the L.A. Times, and and on an almost daily basis, there doesn't, doesn't matter what time of year it is, there is a story about how screwed up my phrase California is when it comes to the generation of electricity. How okay, we've got you know this fire is breaking out, or it's hot, or or whatever, and we're talking about rolling blackouts. Well, again, if if you were to go to that all-electric car model, th- those cars have to be charged, which means you have people plugging into the power grid. And again, the numbers I'm looking at say that if you were to do something like this just just to cover the, the electricity that people are going to need to operate the new vehicles, you're going to be talking about a, a 25% increase in a power grid that right now is already unstable or overtaxed. How by, by by overtaxed, I mean overused. How 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 are you going to do that? Where is that going to come from? How is something like this this practical? Let's talk to Steve in West Bend. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hi, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, okay, I grew up in California, and you know I remember back in the you know early '70s, you could look across the schoolyard and see the smog. Yeah, there's a reason why Cal- California has stricter pollution rules because basically the Bay Area, the Central Valley, the L.A. Basin, they all have mountains around them that trap the smog. So the weather conditions there and the, you know, just the terrain makes it so they have to have tighter controls. Now, you know, fuel cell cars are coming and they'll probably be cheaper than electric cars and be more practical than electrical cars, than electric battery cars. Um, because you can just fill them up with hydrogen and go for 300 mm-hmm. miles and fill them up in you know three minutes instead of waiting for 45 minutes to recharge a car. Further, oil isn't as plentiful as people think, because like you look at the statistics for North Dakota's Department of Mineral Resources, um, those fracked wells have stupendous decline rates. You know, after two years, they're only producing about 25% of their initial production. And so they're on this constant treadmill of having to drill more and more and more and more just to keep even. And um, they, uh, you know, they're just going to hit, they've already drilled the best spots. So now they're getting down to the less productive spots. And okay, so do you th- so for so for fifteen in fifteen years? Do you think it's going to be reasonable to expect every new any every new car sold in in California to be uh, a zero emission car, either electric or fuel cell or something like that? I think it's within the it's within the realm of feasibility. Okay, no, in California, California, it's already about ten percent or five to ten percent is electric already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Thanks. I mean, I, I guess we'll see. I just don't, I mean, my question is going to be how, how are you going to, to charge these things? And, you know, what, what are the costs going to be? Uh, Jeff, in my opinion, electric cars are not affordable. Are there going to be electric trucks that can pull my 32 foot travel trailer? No, this is cars. It it doesn't apply to trucks. My, my understanding is you can still, by trucks. I don't ask me the question about SUVs, but but my understanding is you'll still be able to buy trucks and trucks will I mean run on gas. Um again at affordable cost. Three, the the range of the electric vehicles is limited. Yeah, I think they're they're getting better, but I think that's a, a big thing. 
are people in California going to spend millions, it's probably even more than that, to put charging stations in? I'm frankly just not interested in buying a $100,000 vehicle. Um, yeah, Jeff, it might seem like a pipe dream today, but it's estimated that within 10 years, electric cars will occupy 50% of the market. Elon Musk is betting on it. Okay, with all due respect to Elon Musk, within 10 years, 50% of the car is electric. I, I just, I don't see it unless uh, unless there's dramatic improvements in the, the battery capacity, unless the cost of the vehicles come down dramatically without government subsidies, and uh, unless gas prices go through the roof. Now, you, you put those different things in, you know, maybe so. Uh, Jeff, no way, no how this is going to happen. This type of change happens naturally when the market drives it. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, that's kind of how I, I do this. Um, I, I think, too, it's, at some point in time, like I say, the market is going to take over. I just don't think it's going to be in 15 years. Jeff, I am generally for a free market economy. However, there are times when it might be appropriate for government to try to nudge the free market in a desirable direction. Unfortunately, California is trying to push the free market down the flight of stairs. Yeah, I think that that's it. Jeff, my guess is the governor has a st- has stock in electric cars. Um, Jeff, I'll borrow your phrase. This makes my head explode. How do you think electric cars get charged? Coal burning, not wind farms, because that technology is not to the point where you can have a steady supply to meet consumption. So by increasing electrical usage, you lose all the benefits of zero carbon emissions because you have to burn more coal to meet that demand. Well, I think there is kind of an element to that. Um, Jeff, this is going to make it so that middle class folks can't afford to drive new cars, um, the cars are going to be a lot more expensive. Well, I think there's an element to that as well. In any event, this is, this is California. 15 years from now, under the governor's order, if some if some future governor doesn't rescind this, um, what's going to happen is you are not going to be able to buy an internal combustion engine new vehicle anymore. Time will tell. I'm a little skeptical. Stick around.